You're listening to Real Crime, the Movie Sleuth Podcast. Hi. Hello, hello. Hello. How's everybody doing tonight? Pretty good. Pretty good. It's like uh, holiday weekend and we're actually here doing something. It's kind of crazy, huh? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like a little vacation. Yeah. Before the vacation. It's a vacation before the vacation. I'm on a vacation from my problems. <laughs> so is everybody off work for the next couple of days or no? No. Yeah, I got work on Monday and Tuesday off. I got to work tomorrow. And I got asked to work on uh, Tuesday too, but I'm not doing it. I have to work the whole time. That sucks. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I get holiday pay, so that's nice. Oh, well, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. So I ain't doing it for free. Yeah. All right. So this is episode 143 of Real Crime. We were gone for a few weeks because I got sick and shit, and now we're back again. So tonight we're going to be talking about um, the films of Ari Aster so far, because he doesn't have many. No. He's got how many? Three. Three. And some short films. Yeah. Yeah. Because he did a short film of Bo is Afraid, too, correct? Uh, I don't know about that. Did he? I'm pretty sure he did one just called Bo. Oh, maybe he did. I'm I didn't, pretty, I didn't see that. pretty sure. But before we dig into that, let's mention our sponsors, uh, ProjectorScreen.com. Make sure you visit them for all your home theater needs. And then also Dawn of the Collectors, Rudy's local toy show. They have it a couple times a month, one in St. Clair Shores and one in Plymouth, Michigan. So you can check them out on Facebook and get details on dates, times, and admission. All right. So... In news this week, <laughs> not a lot going on, not really a lot at all, but the latest Indiana Jones movie has proven to be kind of a big, big flop for mm. Disney in Lucasfilm, which I'm not really too shocked by because, you know, the Flash flopped as well. Yeah. It just seems like people are not uh, going to theaters like they used to, you know? Although, in fairness to that, the uh, pre-sales for... Barbie and Oppenheimer, I guess, have been going through the roof. Really? So it was uh, the, what's the first of the new Mission Impossible movies called? Uh, Dead Reckoning. Dead Reckoning. The first part of Dead Reckoning. I think all three of those are doing well in pre-sales. Well, that's good. Well, the Barbie and Oppenheimer thing is also like a meme because they're coming out on the same day. So everybody's like, oh, yeah, you got to go see Barbie and Oppenheimer because, like, you know, they're diametrically opposed, like, aesthetically and, like you know, subject matter wise. So it's like everybody thinks it's funny to go see both of those in the same day. So it's kind of like a meme where everybody's buying tickets to to double feature it. Mm -hmm. And they're like mashing them together and like posters and stuff. There's already like t-shirts that say like Boppenheimer. (laughs) Oh my God. And I think it's pretty funny. The latest trend is uh, the filmmakers themselves, like Reddit Gerwig and Marco Robbie bought tickets to both movies. Uh, Oppenheimer and uh, the Mission Impossible movie, and then uh, it was followed by Tom Cruise and the filmmakers. And uh, I don't think Chris Nolan got into it, but that's because uh, he's grumpy. Killian Murphy definitely got into it. Yeah, yeah. So it's a running gag. So hopefully those will maybe revitalize. I don't even think I don't know if it's like I think it's a combination of people don't go to the movies. Uh, they 
they drop stuff onto streaming like really quickly now after movies come out. Oh, like, yeah, the like, Flash is coming out like in a week, right? Yeah. On it got v- like 30 VOD. days in the theater yeah. before. So, you know, I think they're kind of cannibalizing themselves with the theater with with the quick turnaround. And also, I think a lot of like these big blockbuster movies have just been kind of disappointing mm-hmm. a little yeah. bit. Maybe just had a couple of disappointments in a row and, you know. Well, I mean, The Flash was definitely disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> that was, oh man. I Don't even get me started on The Flash again. <laughs> that mm-hmm. could be a whole podcast, just The Flash. And yeah. What the hell happened? What the hell happened? So, Indy only made like $60 million mm-hmm. domestically. They're saying it's going to cross $130 million, um, worldwide for the weekend, which is just terrible for them. Um, they had initially estimated it was going to make $65 million domestically, which still wasn't a great amount. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they're going to lose their ass on this one because mm-hmm. it, it's actually one of the most expensive movies of all time really 295 million dollars just on production budget wow does not include promotional yeah wow. so they we know could, they spent a lot on promotional oh yeah we could probably be looking at 400 450 million total Damn. on that you know it's kind of crazy it's still just the opening weekend it, it could turn around but we'll see but usually second weekend you see a 50 to 75 percent drop yeah. so mm-hmm. but you know o- over time Blu-ray sales, 4K sales, DVD sales, all of that. Rental before mm-hmm. it goes to like Disney Plus, things like that. They'll 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 get some of it back, but there's no way it's gonna all of a sudden become this massive thing. Yeah. So, you know, I'm just kind of sad for Harrison Ford. I was hoping his last outing as the character would be huge. Yeah. But I think after Crystal Skull, a lot of people felt burned by that one and just were not ready to jump back in. Mm-hmm. You know, the running time hurts it too. Another. Big two and a half hour Disney movie. Like, yeah, the indie movies were all, as far as I know, they clocked in under two hours. Yeah, I think uh, Last Crusade was like two hours and four minutes or something like that. Yeah. yeah. So, in other news, uh, Denny Villeneuve said that we are actually going to get a Dune three. That he's going to do Dune Messiah as the third film oh. in the trilogy. Mm. Sweet. So that came out this week. I don't think there's official word on it yet, but. There's been a lot of rumblings that, hey, he wants to do a third one. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. Did they already finish filming the second one? Or is that still in production with all the strikes and stuff? I think it's wrapped now. Oh, okay. I'm pretty sure they wrap production on it. So, because that's coming out very soon. Oh, okay. Right? Is it? Yeah. I didn't know if it was coming out this summer or if it was like Christmas time. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm okay. pretty sure it's Christmas time, but I could be wrong. I very much could be wrong. Um, Coraline is coming back to theaters for its 15th anniversary. So mm. that's kind of cool. Yeah, I like that movie. Um, and then another rumor has hit that uh, Adam Driver and Margot Robbie have officially dropped out of Fantastic Four. Oh, I didn't even know they were. Yeah, in. they were cast <laughs> as Reed Richards and Sue Storm. Oh, wow. And uh, supposedly they have dropped out. And now Matt Smith of Doctor Who is mm-hmm. going to be Mr. Fantastic. And Van- Vanessa Kirby is going to be Sue Storm. They're like the next ones in the running uh-huh. for it. So mm. I like her a lot. She's great. Where is she from? Um, she's from? been in quite a few action movies yeah. lately. Yeah. Okay. She's really good. She's really, really good. So in new releases this week, we've got Joyride coming out and Insidious the Red Door, which is supposed to be the final film in the Insidious series. Unfortunately, it has not really screened for critics. Uh-oh. So I think... Uh, it's not a good sign. It's not a good <laughs> sign. There was no press screening that yeah. I know of. So yeah, mm. not a good sign. So that's all I got in news and everything for this week. Uh, for my suggested viewing, I am actually going to highly suggest The Bear on Hulu. 
I don't know if you guys have seen this at all. I watched the first season. It was outstanding. This season's even better. Because whereas the first season was all tension-laced and really stressful, yeah. them yelling and screaming at each other, they completely flip-flopped it this oh, year. okay. They're updating the restaurant. They're going to be a more fine dining establishment. And it's very much about them hiring new staff, bringing new people in, and venturing outside of the restaurant yeah. and traveling and doing different things to try and learn mm. how to cook different foods yeah. and experimenting and stuff like that. And the lead characters in a much happier place this year there is one episode i believe it's episode six where jamie lee curtis plays his mom and that episode kind of flip-flops it back to the tension Mm -hmm. so you kind of see where it came from where the um the attitudes the first season came from so i would definitely definitely suggest if you've not seen the bear on hulu at all check it out um i recently watched uh Greg Araki's first movie, The Living End, which was uh, the first of his Teenage Apocalypse trilogy, mm-hmm. which followed was followed by Totally Fucked Up and The Doom Generation, which just got a 4K restoration and is getting a theatrical re-release as well. I know you said The Doom Generation is one of your favorite movies. The Doom Generation is one of my favorite of his as, also, as well <laughs> I can't talk, as well as Splendor. Mm-hmm. Splendor. I don't know if you guys have seen that or I not. I haven't seen that one. Still haven't seen that one. It's super sexy. Mm. Really, really good. Um, not like exploitative at all, yeah. but it's Kathleen Robertson. I don't know if you guys know who she is, but gorgeous actress, really good actress. And it's basically about like a uh, a three-way relationship, yeah. her and two guys. And it's really, really good. Very mm. 90s though, too. Yeah, like his, definitely a staple of the 90s. Uh, yes. With uh, Nine Inch Nails, I think, appearing in all three of those okay. soundtracks for his movies. The movies have a lot of needle drops on the on the soundtracks. All right. Uh, my pick's going to be Asteroid City, Wes Anderson's new movie. Um, I thought it was really good. And there's been kind of like discourse, I guess, around Wes Anderson and uh, auteur theory and how he kind of has like, I guess you could say a house style, um, which I don't think is an issue because like that's what this artist sometimes just have a very distinct style. I mean, nobody's going around going, oh, Picasso is doing that uh, cubism thing again. You know, like nobody says that about him. But for some reason, Wes Anderson has a style. Everybody like is like upset about it. Um, but I, it's like actually one of his most, if not his most experimental film. It's very experimental, like via the way it's constructed and the way it's presented. It's definitely, I mean, if you don't like Wes Anderson, I wouldn't say this would change your mind because it embraces all of his Anderson, you know, style, but it's just, uh, it's actually pretty touching. It's funny. It has a really cool aesthetic. It looks like a faded postcard has a really interesting color grading and it's uh basically a you know it's got the whole story inside of a story thing going on where it's got like different meta layers meta narrative layers it's really interesting and it's definitely worth checking out in the theater before it goes to streaming i was not a fan of his last one which i can't remember the name of it now the french dispatch, the french yeah. dispatch i did not care for but i'm always willing to give him a try yeah because i think he does have some really good stuff and then some of it's a little too like on the nose yeah you know it's definitely different tone than the french dispatch i would say it's more it's it's actually i would say more i guess like his older style stuff it feels like i've heard people say it's a return to form even though i don't think he really changes his form as much as he changes the 
themes of what he's right, making. Right, right, right. But it's uh, it, it's just really interesting. It was really you know, and it's and it's funny too. And it's like quirky, like all this stuff is. I, I I'll check it out. I'm not sure if I'll see it in theaters. Yeah, or it's, it's probably not. on its way out. I'm I, I still have playing still at a couple places, so might still have time to catch it maybe this weekend or next week. Yeah, I'm I'm wondering how quick this will go to streaming. Probably quick. Probably pretty yeah. quick. Yeah. So, but no, you know, again, I always respect his art. I always respect what he does with characters. I enjoy the uniqueness of everything he does. It just the last couple just got they just kind of yeah. grated on me a little bit because it just yeah. felt a little too much mm-hmm. Wes Anderson. Like, okay, dude. But, oh, yeah. He's dude. leaned in it even more in this movie, though. Okay. So. <laughs> but maybe I like it. I don't know. But see, I'm one of those people I never pass judgment until yeah. I see it. So yeah. I'm not going to say, fuck that movie or yeah. I'm not going to see that movie. I will always give something a shot because, again, he's done, for me, you know, like more good movies than bad movies. Yeah. So, and I love Rushmore. Mm-hmm. Like, that's one of my favorites. So, all right. So this week we're talking about Ari Aster and his uh, film career so far, which obviously his uh, first full-length feature was Hereditary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That me and you saw together. Yeah. That was what, about six years ago now? 2018. Wow. I, I'm bad at math, but is that six years ago? Sure. That's five years. Close enough. Close I enough. Think I, might have saw, <laughs> I think I saw that with, with Lee Lind. Yeah. I think you did, too. I think I remember that. Yeah, we went to that press screening, right? Yeah. And yeah. I remember everybody was like, what in the flying fuck did we just see? <laughs> it just, just tore watch? everybody up. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's got a mean streak to it that a lot of horror, at least recent horror, hasn't had in some yeah. time. Like, going as far as you can to uh, trying to hurt the audience. But continue. But, yeah, he was – that's A24. That was uh, – I guess, like, you know, they saw one of his short films. I think it was The Strange Thing About the Johnsons. Mm-hmm. Um, they saw that short film, and A24 was like, hey, we'll give you money to make, like, a full feature, and then that was Hereditary. Before we start talking about Hereditary, though, The Strange Thing About the Johnsons, have you seen that? Which one? The Strange Thing About the Johnsons. No. I've only read about it. It is, like, so, like, take everything that you think is fucked up about his other movies and dial it up to 10. Really? It's possibly top three most fucked up short films I've ever seen. The premise of it basically is there's a family, the Johnsons, and you know how like there's stories about sexual abuse where like the father is like abusing the kids? Right. Well, it's uh, flipped and where the his son is sexually abusing the father. <gasps> yes. It, I can't even... It's on YouTube. Like you can watch it. It is hands down like the most disturbing premise and the way it's filmed, it's... Like, it's so crazy how early he had his style down. It's just, like, one of his new films, but just a short film before mm-hmm. he was, like, you know, famous or whatever, before he was, like, an established director. It looks exactly as good as his new films. It's filmed impeccably, but it the subject matter is so taboo that it's, like, it's almost unwatchable how, because of the subject matter, like... That's that's just it. I'm, I'm kind of afraid to watch it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's... I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to anybody because the subject matter is really depicted just – it's really intense. Is it, like, graphic, though, or is it just intense? Um, It's intense. I wouldn't say – they don't really show anything, but they show enough, and there's so much – they really go into the father and how he feels. Like, you know how it's, – it's just, interest, I guess, interesting because it's just flipped. Like, any story that you've ever seen about – uh, somebody being abused by a family member just imagine that but it's the son abusing the dad but so the dad's like taking on that role and it's just 
and the mom knows and she's like trying to ignore it and it's very just fucked up mm. and and i can tell that like his obsession with just family dynamics fucked up family dynamics is that's where it started right that is like the one holdout with him with everything it's yeah. his carryover everything mm-hmm. that he does is all about messed up families mm-hmm. and the dy- dynamic between yeah. them mm-hmm. you know and even in uh Bo is afraid it's like he already has this messed up family dynamic with his mother mm-hmm. and then when he ends up in that other house with those weirdos yeah that are supposed to be taking care of him yeah. it's like you go from one weird family dynamic to <laughs> worse in a different even way. worse in a different way mm-hmm. you know so this is the one thing he really hits it home with yeah. every single time every single time but yeah I, do, I mean it's on youtube look it up at your own risk <laughs> uh watchers podcast listeners don't you know don't say i didn't warn you don't come back all angry like mk recommended this fucking horrible short film scarred me for life josh has said he's just here to listen to how much michelle liked the new indiana jones movie <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's hilarious um so yeah, Hereditary, we did do a full episode on this a while back. So if you want to, you can refer back to that one to get our even more expanded thoughts on that one. Did we record but that like when we first saw it? Is that when we, we did it? Um, here, I can look it up. And you guys keep talking about them while I look this up. Okay. Well, uh, Hereditary. Um, so the the first time you see that movie, it uh, there's a point mid-movie, mid early on mid-movie, where... It's like the scene in The Exorcist where the the crucifix masturbation scene in The Exorcist where you're hit with a shock so brutal that you're you're kind of left in a daze for a little bit after then the movie goes on I think five or six minutes after the the central scene you know what yeah. I'm talking well, about. Well, we might as well just like preface this with spoilers. We're just spoiling yeah. all three of these films. So if you haven't yeah. seen these films, leave Avoid. now. Yes, <laughs> bye. And, and then come back and listen when you've seen them. So yeah. sp- we're gonna just talk freely because. Obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you don't care about spoilers, even though we're called spoiler free, but not on the podcast. The podcast is different. We did Midsummer was episode <laughs> 120. That was July 24th, 2019. Oh, so wow. the hereditary one would have been way yeah. before that. Yeah. So we must have did it when it first came out. Mm hmm. But so, like, the premise of the film Hereditary is a family. Um, they have a child. Uh, it's like a. A mother, her name is Annie, and she does miniature work. Like, she makes. She's like an artist and she makes miniatures and little dollhouse uh, dioramas. Um, She paints all these figures and stuff and sets them up and she does like art shows and stuff with them. And she's working on, you know, a project and she has a a 16 year old son named Peter and a younger daughter named Charlie. And Charlie uh, seems to be different. Uh, I don't like she the actress that plays Charlie also has an interesting look to her entire persona. But Mm. Charlie has a lot of uh, weird traits, uh, obsessions. Uh, You could almost say I want to I would even almost say she's like portrayed maybe like she's on the autism spectrum. Mm. Potentially. Uh, Yeah. Um, And uh, there's weird things going on with the family. There's a lot of weird stuff that's been in the family tree. Uh, a lot of secrets that are, you know, being kept from everybody, and uh, a lot of emotional baggage mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. for sure. Hereditary was October twenty fourth, two thousand eighteen. Okay, so very soon yep. after it came out. Yeah, exactly. 
But I think the part that Andrew's talking about, the shocking part, and that everybody, uh, that's probably the most iconic thing in the film, is uh, Peter takes Charlie to a party he's at. Charlie's allergic to nuts. Um, she ingests some nuts at the party, and he has to hurry and rush home because she's having, she's going into anaphylactic shock. And she sticks her head out of the window while they're driving because she can't get air because her lungs are closing up. And her she hits a pole and it de decapitates her. And very shockingly, like, it smash cut to her head rotting in the sun. Yeah. With ants crawling on it. Like, yeah. it's, I was blown. I was like, what in the fuck when right, it happened? Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was very shocking the way it happened. And the fact that he just drives home and goes to bed and yeah. just is up all night just waiting for his parents to find out. I think it's a very realistic depiction of grief, too. Mm -hmm. The kind of chaos and and Tony uh, Collette is an absolutely fantastic actress with a lot of range. And I think she was like robbed in this movie, man. She wasn't like nominated for anything, I don't think. But her performance is fantastic as the mm. mom. Oh, absolutely. She's like just goes between so many, you know, I mean, it's a lot of it's sadness, but it also talks about like grief and anger when people die. Um, so in the mid in the midst of all this trauma with Charlie dying, there's something really unsettlingly wrong in the background of the film. Something's not right. Mm -hmm. Something is haunting his family has been haunting them for decades all throughout their lives, but they can't really put their finger on what it is specifically. But they just know that something is is wrong with the family line and um it turns out that there's like cult activity it's a cult film uh going on that their family's been part of for a long time but they didn't know yeah because it was her mother that was involved in it yeah correct? yeah yeah it's kind of like real like rosemary's ba baby yeah uh, Rose mm -hmm. rosemary's talk? baby yeah. uh, sort of next door neighbor called ingratiating herself on the main character and yeah then you find out there's ulterior motives um, one actor in the movie that's also been really great in not only other films he's done, but films he's directed is Alex Wolf, who plays the son. He, outside of the movies, he's a musician, and he directed one movie called The Cat and the Moon, which was sort of a coming-of-age drama, and he's quite good in that one, too, and plays the piano in it. He's fantastic in Hereditary. He's almost, almost as emotional on screen as... Uh, as uh, Tony, Tony Collette is. And there's that scene in the the school where his arm seems to get possessed and he starts smashing his face on the yeah. desk. It's freaking terrifying, and he plays it so believably. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's part of the thing that I love about this movie is that when it's horrifying or terrifying, it's not like stuff you normally see in horror movies, and that's kind of what Ari Aster is really good at. Mm. He's great at making you uncomfortable and, you know, he, like, doesn't play too much into, like, shock value and gore that much, but the crazy things that go on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know? And He's it's good like, at, and it, like, and it, like, you know, ramps up, too. Like, like yeah. towards the end of the, you know, the third act of Hereditary is insane. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, <laughs> I think a lot of people were, like, I don't want to say put off, I guess, but they just, the, the ending to Hereditary is so interesting and dark, and it's dark in an evil kind of just like satanic kind of way triumphant almost like evil wins and triumphantly and everybody's fucked you know and yeah, yeah like when he you know at the end dude one of the scariest like legit top three scariest scenes ever is 
<laughs> when she just when his when his mom at the end crawls on the ceiling or she floats up and she's like sawing her fucking head off with that thing yeah. that is legit like one of the scariest things i've ever seen and i'm very it's very hard to scare me but that really unnerved me it's just filmed so well like when, especially when she's looking at him yeah too. like her eyes are gonna pop out of her head yeah. she just looks so possessed angry possessed yeah and it's just the way like he you know floats up to that tree house too mm-hmm. like all creepy it's and, like and you weren't expecting any of it yeah that. you're just like mm-hmm. what is happening right now and he puts the crown on everybody's bowing him and i was like and the music's like oh and yeah, i'm like it's what very the? heavenly yeah i was like what in the tar- what well and the whole fire scene with gabriel Byrne. yeah too. Mm-hmm. like i knew it was coming you could see it yeah. coming you knew this dude's gonna burn you know mm-hmm. and when he gets lit on fire it's like holy shit yeah and part of that for me is Alicia's uncle Pat that died years ago, mm-hmm. he burned himself to death. Oh man. And you know, it was horrifying because we went to the hospital and saw him yeah. after he had burned himself to death. Like well, he was still like, like on life support for yeah, a couple yeah. hours. So I actually saw a human being at one point that was laying in a hospital bed charred from yeah. head to toe. Wow. You couldn't make out any details. You couldn't tell if it was him or not him. Mm-hmm. So that whole scene, the burning alive, mm-hmm. like that was like, and I don't really, really hit I don't like to use the word trigger that yeah. much, but that was like a trigger and it was very like hard to Visceral. watch because I've seen something like that happen before, you know? So yeah. Yeah. I think and the interesting thing about Hereditary is I've seen it, like, I think, like, three times. And every time I watch it, there's more foreshadowing that I catch. The first time I watch it, you know, you're, like, very – everything's so shocking and you're not really paying attention to the background stuff. But if you – when I watched it the second time, I noticed there were cult members all in the background of every scene. Almost. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, they're some watching. Some of them are like, yeah, they're watching. And I was like, well, I never noticed none of them people. And then, like, the third one – the third time I watched it, I noticed a lot of foreshadowing in the way scenes were set up. Um like there's a scene where Tony Collette's character is walking down a hallway and it the the camera turns it around all the way around so that it looks like she's walking upside down, which is like totally like a, a you know, is like foreshadowing when she's walking on the ceiling, when she's mm-hmm. crawling on the ceiling upside down. Um, there's like little flashes of light that happen before certain mm-hmm. scenes that like point the things. Um, it, it The amount of, it's like the amount of foreshadowing and uh the script's like really tight nothing's wasted there's no wasted scenes it's just all it all serves the ending i guess you could say mm-hmm. there's also particular sounds that are very key that clue you into a possession or a supernatural event notably the the clicking sound the clock sound that they they make oh yeah yeah that little kind of yeah. like yeah yeah God, that movie is just, it just came out of nowhere. You know what's so funny? It's interesting, I guess. Like, people often say Ari Ari Aster is, like, pretentious. But if you watch, like, any interview with him, he's not. He's, like, really down to earth. He's just some guy that likes horror movies and likes movies and likes making them. And then I think when Hereditary came out, that's when the term elevated horror started getting kicked around. Yeah. And I fucking hate that term. It's so stupid. Like, it's just, a, it's basically was invented by somebody that thinks they're too good for horror movies. So, like, if they like one, they have to be like, whoa, it's elevated horror. Oh, la di da. Like, it's like there hasn't been psychological horror films this whole time up to now. Like, yeah. and, you know, and I think a lot I mean, of people. Especially in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to throw that term, I mean, you could throw that term at Get Out. 
Yeah. The, like there's just, there's dozens and dozens of horror films. I mean, you could even throw that at the Outwaters. Yeah. You know, because you didn't really know what was going on. But yeah, that elevated horror. Like, yeah. Why do we have to put this tag on everything? This label on it everything. Just, it was just like this annoying buzzword that was thrown on. And a lot of people think that Astor like made that up, but he's never referred to his own movies in that manner. He's never called them elevated anything. He just, I mean, he makes movies that you have to think a little bit extra in. There's a lot, there's a little, you know, more going on thematically than maybe some other horror movies, but I don't think it makes it look really better. It's just a no, different style no. of horror, you know? But you're right. I mean, in the 60s and 70s, there were a lot of horror movies like this. I think yeah. the problem is, is that time went on, we started to get into the slasher thing, mm-hmm. and that kind of became the mainstay for horror. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, haunting movies and slasher movies were kind of generalized horror. Right. And so now all of a sudden, oh, you got to think a little bit. Oh, so that's elevated. Yeah. It's like elevated horror. People that use that term haven't done their homework. They haven't seen many of the films that right. led up to this or paved the way for it. So... Yeah, that that term can piss off. Yeah. Yeah, and the fact that people would put a label on him, you mm-hmm. know, like no, he's just a creator and he's doing his thing. He's creating yeah. his own art. Like mm-hmm. why do we have to put, you know, these names on everything and these labels on everything? How about dude, he's a movie director, he's yeah. a creator, you mm-hmm. know. So after a debut as iconic and uh stunning as Hereditary, where do you go from there? Where what's your next move? And uh, he delivered a close to three-hour full-core <laughs> epic that basically renewed public interest in the cult horror film scene or folk-horror film scene. Well, yeah, because but, a lot of folk stuff came out right after that, too. Yeah. yeah. And then that folk-horror box set came out, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. But wasn't, like, The Witch out before this? Um, I think it was. It yeah. was, but I would. I don't know if I'd call that folk horror. No, maybe I don't know. I would say, yeah, I would say witch. The witch is folk horror. I would say so. A little religious, you know, stuff mixed in there too. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're talking about Midsummer. Yeah, just so everybody knows. But uh, yeah, Midsummer. Like <laughs> Midsummer was was you know. It was like, you know, an extrapolation, I guess, of his style. Like it was it was still like he has a certain kind of thematic theme with like uh, death and grief and how people handle grief and how they, uh, you know, how they live their life after that. But, you know, Midsummer was a a movie about relationships, too, Mm -hmm. and how they go wrong. Yeah. Yeah. See, I'm, I'm always on the fence between these two of which one is better, you know, and maybe I don't need to do that. Yeah. I think I like them both equally, but um, Midsummer, I, I really enjoy, like, the travel aspect of mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. and the awkwardness between Florence Pugh and the friends, you yeah. know, because you know there's something wrong, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, there's relationships going south and, like, everybody's just kind of at odds with yeah. her. Mm-hmm. I love I love that part of it. I think, uh, so when Midsummer came out, I remember the most prevalent criticism of it was, it was basically the Wicker Man, where I think that's not, I think that's a really surface level way to look at the film because Wicker Man is just, and it, it's, they're similar aesthetically because they're both folk horror movies, which share traits, right? Mm-hmm. That's like, a, it's a genre of horror. So a lot of the films share traits, but Wicker Man is more about, 
you know, conservatives being scared of change and the older generation being scared of the new generation, kind of like the hip, they're scared of hippies. It was like that kind of like fear, authority figures fearing, uh, you know, radicalization and that type of thing. Whereas Wicker Man or whereas Midsummer is more uh, a movie about a relationship breaking down is, in my opinion, it has more in common with like something like Possession. Yeah. Like than it does mm-hmm. Wicker Man. I mean, they both have like you know the the cult stuff going on, in, but I feel like it's just a really lazy comparison to say, oh, it's just like Wicker Man. Like it's not, it's actually like really not. You can make like a it at all <laughs> comparison to Antichrist also. Yeah, the idea of it zeroing in on the disintegration of this relationship mm-hmm. in a in a horrific way as it goes on, because it does end on a a particularly bad note for the. The boyfriend in the movie, Christian. Yes, the the. I think really the only comparison suit. you can make to Wicker Man is like the setting. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, because none of the stories do not align. No, nope. at mm-hmm. all. They're totally different. They're totally different. But the kind of cult like setting, that is the one similarity. But no, I don't think anything. Anybody that makes that comparison doesn't know what they're talking about. It's like kind of like that meme, like, you know, the, this movie is just like this other movie, but you've only seen that other movie, so that's why you're making the comparison. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This has, I get, the original meme is, you know, this movie has Boss Baby vibes. Remember that? Yeah. And it was like, you know, the only movie they ever seen was Boss Baby. But It's like watching the Meg and being like, oh, this is just like Jaws. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, no, it just happens that there's sharks yeah. in each of these. They're nothing like each other. Mm-hmm. I find that. Um, the discourse around Midsummer to be interesting because a lot of people interpret um, Danny, I believe her name was, mm-hmm. Danny and Christian's relationship differently. I even remember when I saw it, I saw it at a press screening and um, the women critics and the male critics, we read the relationship completely different from each other and empathize with different characters. Like to me, when I watch this movie, I it feels like to me, that Christian is a piece of shit and he is gaslighting Danny and that even though it's a relationship that's obviously failing and nobody should feel obligated to stay in a relationship that they're not happy in, he purposely gaslights her and extends the relationship even though he wants out and doesn't acknowledge, he doesn't acknowledge her emotional state at any point and tries to downplay it and gaslight her and and throughout the whole movie i feel like i'm like well you maybe deserve to get burned alive i mean obviously in real life i wouldn't say that about somebody but in the context of, of the, the movie of the movie the like i wasn't sad about like him getting burned up because obviously he was like the entire movie he's gaslighting and you know not listening to danny when she's trying to tell him stuff and he kind of pays the price i mean obviously i wouldn't say it's a good ending because Danny is indoctrinated into the cult. Like that's not a happy ending. I mean, it's kind of a good for her type of thing that she that she finally. I guess it's 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 mixed. Like she, it's good for her that she finally found someone that would listen to her feelings. But unfortunately, the people she found were a cult, and that's that's the kind of person they prey on or people that need somebody to listen to them. So she kind of lost also. It's a little like the ending to Hereditary also in that, you know, this character seems to be prevailing and triumphing, but they're being indoctrinated into yeah. the cult. Yeah. See, I always looked at the ending of the movie as, oh, wow, she finally found her people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's how I looked at it. Like, okay, like, sh- she's at this comfort level now. Like, yeah, it is a cult. And yeah, it's really not a good thing. And sure, you know, they're controlling your mind and brainwashing you and everything. But she appeared... To be happy with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, because she made that, she like kind of made that uh, conscious choice 
herself mm-hmm. that she wanted to be there now and she wanted to be with those people. Right. Yeah. And like I looked at it like, oh, this is a happy ending for her. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. now she doesn't have to deal with this bullshit of all these friends and this dickbag boyfriend mm-hmm. anymore. Now she's like, hey, I'm free, but I'm free in my own way yeah. with these folks. I mean, if you if you look at it from the perspective that we are following her as the protagonist, then on then honestly the audience got indoctrinated to the cult as as well, right? Because mm. you empathize with her, and therefore you you're also being subjected to the same uh, manipulation tactics that she is because the film's from her point of view. So in, in in all reality, the audience also is indoctrinated into the cult at the end. So you you know you're like, oh yeah, good for her, but really, I mean, is it good? Maybe not. You're Did she get a, vindicated? Yes, but you're kind of put into an awkward position as a viewer. Like, what do I do with this? You know, how do, how should I feel about about this? The movie's telling me to feel this way about it, but I shouldn't be because there's there's obviously something very dysfunctional and wrong here. Yeah, and I mean, at, at, at Christian, you know, bad things happen to him. I mean, it's played off as a joke in mm-hmm. the film, I think. Uh, but the part where he they drug him and then they make him have sex with that. Uh, that cult member, that's like he got raped. Like, yeah. right? I think mm-hmm. a lot of times it gets underplayed, po- possibly because he's a man. And uh, a lot of times men, it just it, it, rape scenes with men in films is also, it's like played off as like a joke. Like, oh, he slept with her. He didn't want to, but he ended up doing it. Like, mm-hmm. but it, you know, if you, if you just remove yourself and look at that scene objectively without the, the kind of comedy aspect that is forced onto you by the way it's presented like he got raped like mm-hmm. christian also has bad things happening to him and he didn't deserve that but at the same time there's just the movie and i think in a director's cut he's more of an asshole oh big time yeah big time. so it, i don't know like the way they recut it for the theatrical he seems less shitty i guess they have one it's more debatable they have a after the the big scene with the hammer and the the big the gavel being dropped on the face there's another ritual that they're going to get involved in and she storms out and he follows her and they have a fight yeah and that's kind of in the director's cut seems to consummate that that's the end of their relationship yeah and that's that's the moment that they split yeah so i mean so i guess i could see in the theatrical cut it just feels a little bit more ambivalent towards Christian being an ass. I feel like he was an ass in that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm coming from the the position where I've been gaslit in relationships, you know, before. So right, I'm taking right. her side because I'm like the way like there's like, you know, the, there's like they have argument in the beginning where he she basically apologizes for being upset that her fucking whole family died. Like she's like, sorry, I'm harshing your vibe, Christian, because my like whole family died, you know, right, right. just recently, you know. So I guess it's this whole flippant attitude. I've just dated men like that. So I guess maybe obviously I'm coming this from more of an emotional perspective, which is the whole point of movies. That's you bring your own experience into it. Right. So I'm but reading. I the movie. think that's part of what he's going for, too. I think yeah. that, you know, he is a smart enough and intelligent enough director that when he's writing this stuff, he's probably thinking about all aspects of this. Like, hey, maybe if I play this character to the men, I can play this character to the women and it's going to affect their overall take on the right. movie and the characters. I would think. Yeah. But, you know, I think that I think films that are divisive like that, that can be interpreted in a myriad of ways are more interesting than a movie that tells you how to feel. Oh, totally. Like, you know, Midsummer is, I don't know, it's very nuanced. And it's also like funny. 
which I remember, I recall when the movie first came out, Midsummer. I was like, oh, wow, it's like a dark comedy. And everybody was telling me it was not funny at all. And I was like, crazy. They were like, ooh, it's not a comedy it at all. It is funny. And I'm like, dude, was... there's intentionally funny stuff that in that film. Well, Ari Aster himself called it a comedy, yeah. didn't he? Yeah, later on, like a couple of days later, he did an interview and he's like, oh, yeah, it was a dark comedy. I was like, see? You know, I mean, obviously, like, you know, death of the author and all that stuff. But, like, to me, there were very obvious, like, funny parts, so, like, darkly humorous well, scenes. Well, like, the, the people sacrificing themselves. Yeah. Going off the cliff. Mm. Like, it's violent and it's dark and it's bloody, but it's funny. Yeah. Like, it's just I out of nowhere. Yeah. yeah There's you're... something kind of absurdist about it. Yeah, yeah absurdist. Like, that's good. Term. Oh, we're going out with all the people and we're going to check this thing out. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> it's like, oh, there's people jumping off the cliff. Yeah. And mm. Killing themselves. Like, it's dark humor. It's it's hilarious. Or like when Will Poulter, as I say his name, his character mm-hmm. kept, he was like peeing on their sacred tree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he was just like, what? And he's just like, everybody, they're like, you know, death forever to you. And he's just like, what, man, I just had to pee. You know, yeah. like that kind of stuff was just, I guess, funny to me that. <laughs> oh, and there's also the, the mutant that that keeps coming back to throughout the movie. Oh, yeah. What was the deal with that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I just think it was a creepy, Im- creepy image that he could uh, keep sneaking into the yeah. movie subliminally. Yeah, and I always, I, even when I rewatched the director's cut, I got that schmancy 4K that yeah. they came out with. That's quite nice 4K, by the way. It looks fantastic. Oh, yeah. I noticed when I rewatched it on 4K that there was, like, hidden faces, like, in the background of the trees and stuff and the foliage mm-hmm. when they start tripping. Oh, yeah. I yeah. did not yeah. notice that when I saw it in the theater, and I looked out like, God, that's freaky deaky, man. Mm-hmm. And what's funny about this is, you know, like these are like independent films. And I mean, he must be working on a very minimal budget yeah. and he's doing some pretty amazing things with almost no money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't, what cinematographer did he work with? Did he work with the same one on Hereditary and for? Uh, because they were both shot like fantastically, like just lit well. And I love the way Midsummer is broad daylight horror, which is hard to do well. Yeah, you know, um, it's so bright and colorful, and it just makes it even more, you know, scary. When if you can make something scary in broad daylight, then you're doing a good job. Yeah, I think it's Pavel Pogorzelski. Mm-hmm. He shot all three of his movies. Okay, they're all three of his movies look fantastic. So he needs to stick with that guy because mm-hmm. they're just great looking films. Especially Midsummer, I think is especially beautifully shot. And scored too. I think there's like with that uh, artist Haxon or something, or mm-hmm. like uh, the music was fantastic too. Very well made. I totally forgot that Will Poulter was in this because yeah, he's, he actually he's is in little... an episode of The Bear. Oh, is this he? year too? Yeah. Oh no, yeah, I did see a screenshot. Like he got like hot out of nowhere. I was like, <laughs> he used... got very physically fit. Yeah, I was like, dang, mm. what happened to him? Yeah, I'm sure that was for uh, Guardians. 3 yeah, is yeah. Why. He's in like, which he was totally wasted. Yeah. But he was like, well, I already got these muscles. I might as well keep them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's not. He's so scrawny and young in midsummer. <laughs> oh, he is. He's tiny. Yeah. All right. So. Should we move on to the. Bo. Yeah. Bo is Afraid, which I just watched last night and I absolutely loved it. You know, a few people were like, oh, when you watch it, you might just want to like break it up into like three pieces or you know like yeah, breaking up in half you know because no. it's like three hours and i sat down and it flew by like when it got to the end i was like that didn't seem like three hours at all well once you because yeah. like once you start getting like sick of one part it switches to a whole different it's like three different movies in one yeah yeah mm-hmm. 
it's just it's very layered and the when he's at his apartment in like the very first act of the movie it reminded me a lot of in the mouth of madness mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because there was all the craziness going yeah. on in the streets and he was like trying to get away from it mm-hmm. you know which i know all of it was going on in his head right I'm sure yeah but it really reminded me of that. The crazy people on the street beating yeah. the shit out of each other and like the guy with the knife stabbing him and all that. But yeah, that was kind of, uh, that was terrifying. Yeah. And see, I didn't know anything about the movie. I knew zero about it before mm-hmm. I watched it last night. And when it was that whole first act, I was kind of like, is this going to be a horror movie too? Which yeah. I guess in some ways there are mm-hmm. some horror leanings to it, but not really a horror film. Mm-hmm. Uh, dark comedy, uh, surrealist, episodic. Uh, it's a lot like a Lindsay Anderson movie, like uh, Old Lucky Man, where you're with this character played by Malcolm McDowell, who's a coffee salesman, who's just going around Britain to uh, try and make his way, and all these surreal misadventures keep derailing him, and each one more bizarre than the last, until we're we're as confused as he is. He's just trying to he's just trying to make sense of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Bo, the first 45 minutes of Bo is Afraid is, like, the hardest I've laughed at something in a long time. It's, like, hilarious. You know, I always think of it, like, <laughs> it reminded me of the way, and I'm sure people are going to be mad because I'm getting a little political here. But the way they depicted um, living in the city and Bo is Afraid is, like, how they want Fox News people to think cities are. It's like, oh, yeah, right. Like, you know, it was super exaggerated. Everybody's just druggies in the street. Everybody's murdering each other. There's like a naked druggie that like chases them every day. Mm-hmm. When he's going home from work, there's graffiti that says, You're suck my cock, written, scrawled everywhere. Yeah. It, it, Rioting liberals. Like, that's how Fox News people think cities are. And I wouldn't be surprised if Bo's viewpoint on city life and where he lives was imparted to him from his mom who probably indulged in a fox news or two because she's old and rich and i feel like (laughs) i'm trying to be nice i know i know (laughs) but i just couldn't help but think that that's how some people think cities are you know like this really super exaggerated hellscape kind of thing and it's obvious that like it's not actually like that he just that's how he views the world because he has extreme anxiety. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And as someone with anxiety, I totally vibe with that, uh, you know, little things seeming like big things and you're just worried about a lot of potential things that never happen. Um, you know, that the whole entire first 45 minutes just feels like an extended panic attack, really. Mm-hmm. It does. And I think, you know, a lot of that, because this came out, you know, off of the tail end of the pandemic, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still going on, you know. It's still going on, but, um, you know, I kept thinking about that. Like, you know, a lot of this is probably designed around all of the mental health issues we're having now because I mean, when he's like, you know, at that door getting ready to go across the street (laughs) because he took his medicine with, or dumped those pills down his throat with no water Mm. and he's like, I got to get water. I have to get water. And like, I was right there with him like, oh shit, dude. Like, get across the street as fast yeah. as you can so nothing <laughs> bad happens, you know? The way that whole scene is shot is hilarious. Like, how he props that door open with the phone book. Yeah, And then, like, all those, like, uh, homeless people are scrabbling into it. So he's like, no, he's just trying to get the water up. It's like, what is happening right now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know many other actors that have, could have pulled that role off yeah. other than Joaquin Phoenix. Mm-hmm. He really gets deep 
into these parts, kind of like he did with the Joker. Like Joker's not this great movie or anything, but he breathed was, a lot of life. Yeah, into he it. brought you know it was like he lifted that character up and made his own thing out of it. Mm-hmm. And same thing with this. I mean, he definitely plays you know neurotic, uh, some neurotic person with mental health issues. Well, because what mm-hmm. was that other movie he did before Joker? Uh, you're you're always never always here. What was it called? Uh, you were never really here. You were never yeah. really here. Yeah, that one he was good in that, and he's also got mental health issues in that. The master. The master was where he first really displayed the yeah, the neuroses mm-hmm. and uh, the tendency towards uh, uh, violence or yeah, mad behavior. I guess you know it's a different style of neurosis in Boaz or Frey as opposed to his other movies because the other movies he's reacting to things with violence or you know and then Bo is afraid he's basically just taking what's happening and it doesn't do anything about it you know what I'm saying like he's just he's just there for the ride mm-hmm. he's very passive and codependent and doesn't uh, advocate for himself he doesn't have any boundaries the whole film is basically everybody doing what they want to him he has no say in anything mm-hmm. he's just taking along for the ride but, I mean, obviously the film is called Bo is Afraid, so he is afraid of everything in his life, of, mm-hmm. you know, his mom. He's afraid of making connections with people. He's afraid of uh, upsetting people or making people upset with him. Well, like the scene in the van with the daughter <laughs> and the joint. And he's like, no, no, I don't want that. No, 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 I don't want that. No, no, don't want that. And yeah. she's like, just smoke it. No, I don't want that. And she hands it to him, and next thing he does is... He smokes it. Yeah. And then she's like, okay, smoke more. Okay. And he just, like, he has no willpower. Yeah. And, like, he never can stand his ground and just say, no, Mm. I'm not doing this. I don't want this. Everybody forces everything down his throat at all Mm. times. I think it's interesting how, you know, the film has acts where, it like, all these acts could be wholly different films. Like, the beginning where he's having the panic attack and he's in the city in his apartment and he finds out his mom has been murdered, and also no, that's it was accidental. The chandelier. Oh yeah, the fell chandelier fell on her head, and it's and like so he's random. talking with the UPS guy like on the phone. That's just so funny to me. Like it's not supposed to be funny, but it was. Um, and then so then after that he goes into a suburb and it has Nathan Lane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is a most unlikely bit of casting. Yeah. Like Nathan Lane in an Ari Aster movie. Yeah. So I actually, honestly, out of the whole film, I found the suburb part to be the least interesting. I found it to be least interesting. But when Nathan Lane says to him at the dinner table the first time, you know, your testicles are really distended. Yeah. You know, we should really do something about that. Blah, 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 blah. I kind of had a feeling that later on, something was going to happen with his testicles being blown up. Cause I'm like, this dude has never jerked off and he's (laughs) never had sex. And that's why his balls are like that. Like he's just like a bucket of semen. Dude. Okay. So when I saw that at the screening, I was sitting next to Nate. So shout out to Nate. If he listens to this, I was sitting next to Nate, another fellow critic. And you know, the part where he's in the city and he gets hit by the car and he's naked and you like, it zooms in on his balls. Yeah. Like for a split second. Into the camera. Yeah. I turned to Nate and I said, did his balls look like weirdly large to you? And he was like, yeah. And then later on, they're like, oh, you have ballitis or whatever the fuck's wrong with his balls. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, I did. There was something wrong with his balls. 
<laughs> there was but, foreshadowing on his balls. I just went. <laughs> well, because then when he has sex with, um, what's her name, Parker Posey, mm-hmm. at the end of the movie, if you real, I mean, he's having an orgasm yeah. for like a minute and a half. Yeah. Like he finishes <laughs> and then like he finishes again. And I'm like, this dude's been backed up his like entire life. And this is probably a big part of his anxiety. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I would think. Yeah. Pent so, up sexual. He was like an incel. Yeah, mm. exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's so many like cultural references in this thing to what's actually going on yeah. in society. It's great. It's let's, absolutely great. Let's talk about the set pieces in the middle when he goes into the forest and uh, it's like this giant rotating set with the trees. And, oh, you're talking about the animated part? Well, the animated part's part of that sequence, but yeah. he goes into the forest and it's all these like plastic trees mm-hmm. that are on rotating set pieces. There's and, a stage. Right, and there's a stage and they're all actors. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like a Midsummer's Night Dream kind of like style yeah. thing going on with that whole the playwright mm-hmm. so uh, what's funny about that part to me also is it <laughs> they go into this big long thing right and then so it's like a play about Bo's life that he's watching he's also playing the character in the play you know and it's all animated which i thought the animation was really cool which i found out that the wolf house people did that animated part if you've mm. seen that oh really yeah. okay that yeah. makes sense that yeah. makes sense yeah we um, did watch that one yeah that's a dope movie but i found out they did the animation for that part and that's actually my favorite part of the movie is the animation part. But they go through this whole entire big long story of this animated part just to come back to the beginning and it didn't mean anything. They're just like, <laughs> like he just bows like looking for his kids and then he meets his kids and then they're like, wait, you've never had sex. So like, where'd these kids come from? Like they literally say that. And he's like, oh wait, I've never had sex. And he's like, I don't, and he's just looking around like, whose kids are these? Like I couldn't have Right, had. right. After but that it, it's whole... just, it doesn't, it meant nothing. It was just a circular route that, our, you know, Aster was just like, fuck it, I was going to film this part because There was funny. a great flood and I lost my family. Yeah. And, you know, where's mom? I, I don't know. There was some pretty wild makeup on Joaquin, too, where we see him play different ages. Mm-hmm. We see a child version of him and yeah. three different adult phases. Mm-hmm. The child version of him also was kind of funny because he went viral in real life because people thought he was a CGI and then he had to do it. He did a TikTok, and he's like, "I'm a real person. I'm not CGI at all. This is how my yeah, face looks." Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I looked him up because I was like, he actually kind of looks like Joaquin Phoenix yeah. when yeah. he was a kid, you know. But. But yeah, the whole play part—it's just, gosh, the movie's just so strange. It just—it's like a roller coaster, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I think most people won't vibe with a hundred percent of everything that's going on in the movie. And I don't think you're supposed to, I think, you know, Astor's throwing a lot of stuff down and he's like, Hey man, there's like this part. And then if you don't vibe with that, I'm doing something different here. And then I go to a different type of thing. And then it just feels very nightmarish. The whole movie just never feels like anything's real. Like you could mm. even maybe argue that, you know, maybe Bo's dead. Like, maybe he's just imagining things, like, in the bathtub where he gets that guy jumps on him. Maybe he's, like, <laughs> dying, drowning, and everything's, like, a nightmare after. I don't know. Like, none of uh, it really ever, it never at any point becomes grounded enough for you to, to grasp onto something as mm-hmm. real. It all feels surreal, I guess. When he's in the bathtub and he looks up and that guy is, like, yeah, doing like, the, you know, pose over the top of him holding himself up. I was like, <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> this is not going to go well. And then they like 
the dude and the, the 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 guy that's above him is terrified too. Yeah. He has a look of terror on his face. And I'm like, they're terrified of each other. Mm-hmm. So is this like some split off personality of his? Yeah. As mm-hmm. well. And then, you know, they fall into the tub together and they're like wrestling. And I'm like, why are they even wrestling? Like this dude was just as scared as he was. So yeah. why are you fighting? Like just both you guys get out of the tub and be like, dude, go home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? But so I think that was partly him like wrestling mm-hmm. with his anxiety and fear and all that yeah. too. Mm-hmm. A big part of the movie is what is he afraid of? What are the various things that he's afraid of that are, you know, closing in around him and, you know, his his bow, in fact, the author of his own uh his own fears. Like at the end of the movie, there's kind of a Pink Floyd the Wall sort of a trial sequence. Uh I if you could call it such. Yeah. And um, stars the dad from Wonder the Wonder Years. That was a fun oh, yeah. cameo. <laughs> I think a lot of it. I think we kind of got a hint of where his fear comes up because you see that in the later part of the movie when they do a flashback that he had a brother, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. And the mother locked away the brother. Yeah. In the attic, mm-hmm. you know. But who knows? And there was with a the giant, penis demon with the giant dick monster up there too. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I think you know. Yeah, I think I think dude's afraid of everything. I think he's afraid the most of rejection. Mm-hmm. Like he's afraid of that people won't want him around. He's afraid of that's why he acquiesces to everything and has no boundaries because he wants the people please. Mm-hmm. Because he's afraid of being rejected. He's afraid of of uh, disappointing people, especially his mother. I think everything stems from him feeling like a disappointment to his mother and he never was good enough for her. And it just, you know, spiraled into him being afraid of intimacy, being afraid of sex. Like, that's why there's a penis demon. Obviously, he's afraid of sex. (laughs) So that's like represents that. I mean, it just comes out of nowhere, though, because you're like, oh, oh, there's a big penis demon now. That's happening. very Pink Floyd the Wall kind of image, you yeah. Know? Like the the judge at the end of Pink Floyd the Wall is a giant right, right. ass with legs moving around, <laughs> and he he defecates on Pink. So Ugh. there's a lot of that going on in in the movie as well. When he's first up in the attic and they showed the dick monster, I'm like, <laughs> holy shit, that's a giant dick. Yeah, that's how <laughs> like, the audience was when I saw it. They're like, is that a wiener? Like, <laughs> <laughs> a wiener. <laughs> I was just like, what the... I think it, it reminds me of Mother. Oh, uh, totally. Like, the way it's, like, the whole yes. thing is allegory, I guess. Like, and then sometimes it doesn't play well with people. I know for Mother, it didn't play well. Some people don't like when everything's symbolism. They need something to, gra- to grab onto. To, they need a straight narrative yeah. with their religious yeah. undertones but or whatever I don't, else. But I think you can't read Bo is Afraid as a real-life thing that's happening. I don't think any of that's happening. To be mm. honest, I think it's all in his head. It's all surreal. It's just him picking through, you know, all of his insecurities, and in every one of his insecurities has its own universe inside his mind, and we, and we're just inside Bo's head, looking at all of his dusty corners and cobweb and skeletons in his closet. It's like it's like basically being trapped inside someone's mind, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's kind of what I thought too. The thing I wonder is how the hell did he script this thing? I don't know. How did he pitch it to A24? I mean, because it it's its most expensive film to date. His or A24's? Um, his to oh, date okay. for, uh, I think it was like $50 million or something. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I think th- at this point with somebody like Ari Aster, who's, you know, given them two successful movies like Hereditary and Midsummer, mm-hmm. they're probably like, 
Sure, dude. Blanche. Do what yeah. you want. People are going to watch it. I mean, I know this didn't do well at the cinema no. at all, mm. but... It's hard to get people to commit time to a three-hour movie. I mean, I barely caught it before it left theaters. Right, right. Yeah, the only reason I even... I mean, I didn't see it playing really anywhere near me. I just... I happened... I saw it at a press screening. Yeah. Um, But I think a lot of times with directors, too, like, so you have, like, their first movie, and then, what was it, sophomore? That's their second movie. Mm. And then, so, like, his first two movies, he's got to be a little bit more careful because it's hard he's not a known name he has to get funding you know um so then once a director gets a little bit of you know prestige they mm. make a weird movie right yeah so like it does that happened with um jordan peele is another good example of this he mm. made uh you know get out and then he made uh us, us. And then he made Nope. And Nope is like hella weird. Mm-hmm. And it's all his weird stuff. He's always probably, I bet Nope is all kinds of ideas he's always wanted to do and stuff and couldn't get the funding for it. Mm-hmm. And now they have more carte blanche, I guess, to make movies. So they make a weird one to get it out of their system. Mm-hmm. I guess as if that makes sense. Nope did well, though, I think. Yeah, yeah, it did. Yeah. But I'm just saying, it's like thematically, I guess it's like one of, it's more experimental and weird mm-hmm. than its previous two were kind of more out there, more like trying out things Mm -hmm. and i think people are like quick to write people off like you know ari aster makes two very well regarded movies and he makes one weird movie that's kind of a little guy a little off and everybody's like oh it's the end of ari aster like dudes make three movies like goddamn give him a chance and it's got some great actors in it who obviously took a chance with him and i mean even if you don't like ari aster people are gonna see it for joaquin phoenix i mean he he makes this bizarre premise relatable. Yeah, totally. No, I do not think this is the end of Ari Aster at all. I mean, because the thing is, he can always loop back around and do another horror film. Yeah. yeah. Do or, another smaller film. Yeah, mm-hmm. or do whatever he wants. So people are so quick to just jump on that whole bandwagon of, oh, they're done. That's yeah. it. That's oh, it. I mean, no more. Heaven's Gate. Look at Heaven's Gate. Yeah. And yeah. That's perfect example of their pining for it and waiting for it to fail, hoping it would fail and kind of dancing on its back. Mm-hmm. Yep. I feel like A24 as a, you know, production company or whatever, they don't care as much if things are like super giant hits. I mean, every once in a while they get, you know, a, a film like Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. That was like a mega hit, made a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But That's, I think most, their most successful film. Yeah, it totally is. But, you know, and, but they've made, a, they've, you know, greenlit or you know distributed a lot of weirder movies that didn't make any money and they just like weird stuff mm-hmm. they i don't think they care as much about box office i mean not to say they don't care at all because obviously they're a company but i just I, I feel like it's part of their aesthetic that it doesn't have yeah. to do well it's just a weird interesting intriguing film well mm-hmm. and i think they understand that they have their own kind of following mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is going to invest in buying this stuff for home media or renting it like on Amazon yeah. or any of the other streaming mm-hmm. services. Um, Cause like they did X in Pearl yeah. too, right? Which I mean, those did fairly well, yeah. very yeah. low budget, you know, made a little bit of money, <clears throat> but not a lot. But then you have a lot of people like me who like, Oh, I'm buying those too. Yeah. yeah. You know, so I thought those did well. Um, for being horror films and being A24 releases, I thought they were box office successes. Um, yeah, and A24 has, like, you know, pretty much cornered the niche art house market. Them mm-hmm. and Neon. Yeah. Yeah. It's neck and neck between which I like better, Neon or them. Mm-hmm. 
probably probably neon just because they've put out some really daring movies yeah um a24 has also started to buy older movies like they put out the the 8k restoration of aronofsky's pie yeah i wish i could have seen that in the theater yeah, it was at Cinema Detroit for one weekend. Yeah. It's real, real shame what happened to them. Yeah. I heard they were, I guess, aren't they were trying to buy another place or something? Or I think they're going to do uh, pop-up events, like, at different venues, but I don't know when or if they're going to land another venue. I think that was the one of the saddest things about COVID was all these art house places closing down, mm-hmm. you know? Losing the main Making art. it a little bit yeah. harder. Okay, so Pearl... For an instance, was it cost one million dollars oh. to make that movie, and it made nine point seven million nice. worldwide. So yeah, it's pretty yeah. good. Yeah. For... yeah, that's damn good. That's you know they made their money profitable. back, unlike Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Oh God, <laughs> <laughs> that oh. one's for Josh if he's still if yeah, he's still I listening. I don't know. If he's... <laughs> You know, the sad thing about the whole Indiana Jones thing, getting completely off topic, is, you know, this gives the fanboys in, like, the people that rally against Kathleen Kennedy, it gives them way more fuel. Mm -hmm. Because now, like, oh, she failed. She failed. She failed. I've never paid attention to, like, producers like these people do. I'm like, who, 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 I don't know who produces anything ever. They think that she destroyed Star Wars. They think that she's destroying Indiana Jones. They think she's destroying this. She's destroying that. The fact of the matter is, this woman worked with George Lucas from the 80s on. She's been involved in dozens upon dozens of the biggest movies ever. She produced the original Indiana Jones trilogy, didn't she? Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's just been involved in everything. And again, I know we're totally off topic here, (laughs) but, you know, it's kind of frustrating that people have this hate for her. And I'm kind of like, yeah, well, you may hate her. But do you realize everything she's done and, you know, how successful she's really, really been? Um, I mean, she's produced over 113 films. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of crazy. You know, I won't break the list down, but when you see the list, you're like, oh, yeah. Um, I mean, she's been involved, like, in everything, you guys. Like, everything. Oh, yeah. Um. I'll just look really quick. Uh, I hear Mocha. <laughs> she pr- Lincoln, Tintin, uh, The Last Airbender, <laughs> Benjamin Button, Ponyo. Oh, yeah. I like you know, she, she produced Ponyo. She produced Persepolis, uh, War of the Worlds, Seabiscuit, Signs, Jurassic Park, AI, mm-hmm. Snow Falling on Cedars, uh, The Lost World, Twister, uh, Balto. The Indian in the Cupboard, Congo, The Bridges of Madison County, The Flintstones, Schindler's List. You know, I mean, the original Jurassic Park. Yeah. Alive. I mean, Hook. <laughs> A Brief History of Time. Mm. Curly Sue, Cape Fear, Back to the Future, Arachnophobia, mm-hmm. Always. There's a lot of bangers in that list. I mean, she's done, yeah, yeah. Spielberg, Frank Marshall Productions. Yeah, so again, not to get off topic too much, but. You know, she kind of has the career to back yeah. it up. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Anything else you want to say on Ari Aster tonight? Um, I just hope that uh, 
uh, it actually gets a 4K disc and not just a digital release because it's currently just on Blu-ray, I think. Is that? A24 probably put out a schmancy one. Don't they always? Yeah. For everything? Eventually. Web store exclusives. Does he... Isn't he working on a new movie? Probably. There's nothing on his IMDb page Oh, I thought I heard he was... Maybe I'm confusing him with David Eggers. Is that the vampire thing? Is that David Eggers? Oh, he's doing Nosferatu. Right. Eggers is? Yes. Okay, that's who it was. Robert Robert Eggers. Robert Robert Eggers, sorry. Yeah. 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 That's cool. No, Ari Aster has um, nothing listed on his IMDb page as of now. Oh, okay. I'm sure he was cooking something up. Oh, he's got to be. Cooking some fucked up shit up. Even if he doesn't, I mean, there's there's a lot to chew on with his last movie. I yeah. mean, there's like enough ideas in it for three or four movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of directors take a lot of time off in between films, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, But no, I think it would be cool to see him, you know, going back to horror. Yeah. Or maybe doing something totally different. Like do you know sci-fi? Yeah, you know don't do action, but it'd be cool to see him do something. Yeah, sci-fi more... movie would be cool. Yeah, Hell yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, he's only producing three films right now. Okay, Dream Scenario, Save the Green Planet, and Lonely Hearts Club. He's not um, attached to direct anything. Save the Green Planet is that a is yeah. that a remake of the Korean film? Yeah, producer. Because that's see. where I've heard that before. Mm. Haha, it is. Oh. oh. It's uh, director Jun Hwan Jang. Oh. I don't know if he did the original, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's a sci-fi film. Oh. So it must be yeah. a remake. Interesting. I have to look into that when I get home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. We good? I think, I think we've we astered it all up. Okay. <laughs> you, know, there's, you know there's totally people that don't like him. They call him Ari Aster. Aster to Aster. Yeah. <laughs> Ass. All right. Well, all right. We'll be back next week, you guys. Not sure what we're doing yet, but thanks for watching. And for Visit watching. us at www.themoviesleuth.com and find The Movie Sleuth on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and iTunes.